Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious doc and researcher. Santosh, I have been watching so much TV lately. I'm, I'm torn between being super excited about the bear or equally terrified, not knowing whether anything around me is cake. <laughs> so just to clarify some things, for those of you not in the know, the bear... It, highlights the goings on of a chef in a it, it's kind of like one of those amazing chicago style like hot beef places right like your corner uh you know kind of signature dish store and i heard it was absolutely awesome and for those of you who don't understand if things could be cake um i my heart aches for you because you're living in a dream world. I just walk around biting things yeah. all day long. Literally anything <laughs> around me could be cake. I have no faith in reality I, anymore. I, I don't know the last time I sent you, I think I still have the text. I, I sent you the text of, is it cake, the, the show, is it cake, is getting a second season, like all caps. And then fairly sure the next thing I know, you dropped your phone. <laughs> Luckily, my phone was not cake. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that we lost you for a solid however long, many hours it was to binge that season. That show is so good where amazing cake bakers, they, they specialize in realistic type cakes. They fake out an, a, 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 a bunch of judges, fool them into thinking that this thing is cake. <laughs> now, yeah. those of you listening at home may be wondering, why did you tune in 
to a medical show to hear about <laughs> cake and sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> How am I possibly going to tie this to medicine? Well, you know, it's, it's everything that we do contributes to our health, including our diet. And probably we should be talking about, you know, healthy living and healthy eating and that kind of a thing, Josh. Is, well, is that what we're going for? I or could maybe- make this a- I could make this a recipe-based episode, or I could give you the medical version of Is It Cake, which I like to call Food and Why. (laughs) So this week, we're going to be talking a little bit about culinary medicine, but it's an alternate week. So rather than focus on the field of culinary medicine, I'm going to cherry pick my favorite Ah. articles. It begins. And we are about to have a food and why journal club. Yay! Yay! Kermit arms, folks. Come on, give us those Kermit arms around the world. So all of our articles this week are going to be about food-based medicine or around cooking. Heard, Chef? heard. So (laughs) with our first article, one of the easiest things that we all think of is, of course, salt. Absolutely. This huge uh, issue in modern health. So to give people a little bit of a background, evolutionarily speaking, salt, so sodium chloride, is one of the most important things that we need to ingest in order to keep all of our cellular processes working properly. So Josh, our entire evolutionary history coming up to now where we're humans is, has been around like getting salt. We have to get salt. So it's been, it was rare before it was hard to get. And now that we live in a land of plenty, we are craving it still as if we are just running out on the plains trying to find salt. And what ends up happening is we eat too much and we get the adverse effect, predominantly high blood pressure and kidney damage. So salt is super so important. So the biggest issue, too much salt is a much more common problem. Not enough salt, also a medical problem. Yes. Also one I in the hospital see relatively frequently, but... High salt intake is seen much more commonly with high blood pressure, with heart failure, with kidney disease, with a wide variety of conditions. So what if we took the salt off your table, unscrewed the cap, just like we're back in college, and sneakily (laughs) replaced it with a different Uh kind of salt, salt that is potassium enriched? Oh, Well, this is really interesting because we certainly need potassium. Uh, We need chloride as the as the uh, anion as well. And potassium is a a good thing for us to have. You can overdo it with potassium also. But, you know, it, it would be nice to have something there that still tasted kind of salty, but didn't make us crave it as much because when sodium hits our tongue, oh, my gosh, our like hunger sensors go insane. So this would be so good. We traditionally only think about restricting the salt intake of people who have cardiovascular conditions. Uh, People have had heart attacks and strokes. But one of the populations that we really haven't talked a lot about who 
often incidentally has a lot of health problems is our geriatric, our older population. So in April of this year, 2023, a study was conducted looking at salt substitution and salt restriction on elderly care facilities, aka nursing homes. And it's a randomized trial that took place in China, which specifically looked at people who are over 55 and living in care homes, meaning they are not able to live independently for one reason or another. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Well, I do hope that, well, in a trial like this where you're changing up a person's dietary environment, I would hope that there was some kind of consent going on. This is a vulnerable population. These are folks where if we don't get proper consent and that kind of a thing, you can end up experimenting on them against their will, which is, of course, you don't want to do. So you have to design this properly. But I'm guessing if everyone consented or, or you had you know good uh, people who cared about these folks who are consenting, um, this would be an excellent try to see if they would get healthier by using a potassium-based salt rather than sodium. So what happened, Josh? Let me tell you a little bit about the trial itself. It oh, was yeah. a trial made up of 1,600 people spread across 48 different nursing facilities in China. Meals were prepared with either regular salt containing 100% sodium chloride or with a potassium-enriched salt substitute that only had 62% sodium and 25% potassium along with natural flavorings. In China, that could be MSG, that could be some of the others, but the main ingredients were 62% salt, 25% potassium. Some of the participants also just ate meals with less salt in general. So they self-restricted. Right. Everyone. This is is like our um, kind of our standard of care right now. We just said, hey, just, you know, if you're going to see your doctor and you're having an issue like a, you know, coronary artery disease, they would say one of these things like, hey, slow down on the salt. Every participant was over 55 years old and the average age was 71. They took everybody's blood pressure at the beginning of the study, and the average blood pressure was around 140 over 80, which for an elderly population is about where we would want or expect it to be. Now, over two years examining these people and following through, those living in facilities that had the potassium salt substitute had an average reduction in blood pressure of systolic, the top number, of about seven points, and diastolic pressure, which is when your heart relaxes, the bottom number, of about two points compared with those in the regular salt group. That may not sound like a lot, only seven points drop in blood pressure, but that reduction was associated with 1.5 fewer heart attacks, strokes, and other cardiovascular events per 100 people. So for every random hundred people in a nursing home in China, and there's a lot of people in China, (laughs) one and a half of them would have less heart attacks just by virtue of being on this lower lower sodium potassium salt. Yeah. And this is a very low cost way of saving a life. Um, so not not a super strong effect, Josh, I guess, but still for the amount of money that you're putting into it, you know, it, or or not even a, 
little bit of money putting into it, that's that's a good way to save a few lives, you know, and probably make lives better because the person is not suffering from everything that goes along with the higher blood pressure, et cetera, the heart attacks. Now, now for context, these 48 different residential elderly care facilities were located in four regions in northern China, Xi'an uh, in Shanxi province, Hohat City in Inner Mongolia, Changxi County and Yangchen County in Shanxi, all of which were selected for their very high sodium intake, high prevalence of hypertension, and history of research collaboration. So <laughs> there was group consent, and there were two arms to this study, salt substitute and stepwise reduction in salt supply. The whole trial was called the DECIDE, D-E-C-I-D-E, DECIDE Salt Trial. And overall, it worked. You did see uh, compared with usual salt, the salt substitute ended up lowering blood pressure, decreased the risk of cardiovascular events such as heart attacks and strokes. Now, the flip side is this was accompanied by a slight increase in hyperkalemia, meaning too much potassium in the blood, because as our blood pressure starts to rise as we get older, our kidney function starts to decline. So you are less able to quickly account for changes in your potassium and sodium loads. And Josh, I know this is one of the, it's one of the things that we dread in the hospital when someone's getting an IV supply of potassium, because that type of rush of potassium can very quickly, you know, kill a person. It can cause an arrhythmia. So it's one of the first things that we learn in medical school is that if a person's potassium is riding a bit low, rather be a little bit low than a little bit high. But in a, I think in a daily type of a thing, if you're, if this is a dietary potassium where that intake is much slower and much more graded, this is not nearly as dangerous. So having a little bit of high potassium in this case is probably not going to add to any adverse events. So there had been one of these studies before, the salt substitute and stroke study or SAS, but it was carried out with participants <laughs> living freely Sorry, in the community. Sassy. <laughs> Very well, sassy. It was carried out with participants living freely in the community who could sass you back if they didn't want to change their diets. But as you noted, you if you're yeah. in a collective living setting with limited control over what you're eating, that's probably why you saw the maximal effect of the intervention. People can't choose to not have this food cooked with the salt. However, that doesn't mean that some of them couldn't supplement by adding their own salt or sure. that some of the nursing home facilities were not inclined to change how they cook. So there are some confounds, but even with those, you still saw that changing to a 25% salt substitute potassium, that's a relatively low potassium con content compared with other salt substitutes. For example, Mrs. Dash, which is the one that I usually recommend to people who are trying to decrease their salt intake. The number one thing that you want to do when a person is in assisted living like this is make the quality of their life as good as possible. Because, I mean, we know these, these folks are getting on and, you know, a, a kind of sad situation. You don't have a lot of visitors, et cetera, et cetera. So you do want them to have, you know, while they're there, the best life that they can. And that includes preventing events like heart attacks and strokes 
much more so than, you know, letting them kind of go about their lives and then treating them. So um, I, I hope it is, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of comment in this paper about, you know, tastiness versus not tastiness, Josh. So, oh, there was. Here's my oh, favorite part. Oh, so tell me, I told tell you, me. I told you there were two arms. One oh, was yes. salt substitution using yes. a potassium salt. The other was stepwise reduction. Well, okay. so the same, step- same salt, sodium chloride, but just to, you know, do less that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. That's that arm failed. Just oh. failed, did not did not show any decrease. And some of the reasons that it was unsuccessful, the premise of the strategy was that a stepwise reduction would not be noticed by the participants and no one would take compensating actions. But site visits and self-reported data both said participants immediately detected reduction in salt use and added okay. non-study table salt to their meals to their meals. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Okay. So, all right. So where the, the potassium based salt made up for the saltiness. Whereas if you just told the person to cut the salt, there was like, this tastes horrible. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm not looking forward to this, Josh, but it is well known that as we age, our senses dim a little bit, you know, it's harder to see, we can get cataracts, our, our hearing, you know, gets less and less. But likewise, our taste buds uh, become less acute, our sense of smell becomes less acute. So we need more tasty stuff in order to enjoy our food. So yeah, telling a person like that to try to cut down sugar, salt, whatever it is, is a little bit of torture. So I'm, I'm glad. It sounds like maybe that potassium worked, you know, to, to actually stop the, the craving, like the adding their own uh, sodium chloride on there. That's good. It ended up being a very good study. It When you are dictating what people are able to eat, you do see some pretty significant reductions. If you were just scaling back, that takes time over six to 12 months, and you saw a lot of intentional or unintentional noncompliance. So essentially, if you are out there and you want to start taking steps to lower your blood pressure, changing to a potassium-based salt, not, you know, that doesn't mean you don't have any salt. It just means that you replace some of it. It's not 100%. There's other things in it. And it will have noticeable effects. It will decrease your risk of strokes, of heart attacks, those. So great study and equally delicious. Yeah. Huge congratulations to Dr. Yang Feng Wu et al. And the impact of this study was, I think, large enough that Nature Medicine accepted this. So I think it was absolutely wonderful. I hope this is, it it probably needs replication in different countries and sites and and environments and things like that. But I hope people go ahead and do that because I think this is a very worthwhile, simple, low-cost intervention to save lives and make lives better. Now, our next study is a little bit more fun. You know, we were serious. Now, let's kick back and have some candy. Oh, wait. Oops, I'm sorry. Let's take a candy-like method to deliver Mm -hmm. medications and talk about medicated chewing gum. Hey, okay. (laughs) 
are, are you talking about like a nicotine-based gum or something like that to help you quit smoking? Or I'm talking uh, about gum as a delivery system for multiple drugs, not just nicotine, but oh. heart disease, seizures, antibiotics. The possibilities are endless. Let's get Wonka and the Oompa Loompas in here. <laughs> so this is from the Journal of Indian Academy of Oral Medicine and Radiology, which, well, that's that's a big group of things they're covering in there. So it's out of Madhya Pradesh in India, uh, in Indore. So, okay, let's, let's uh, hear about it. So first, they looked at medicated chewing gum for buckle. That's just oral delivery. Um, yeah, now, in your cheek. Chewable tablets and chewing gum permit more rapid therapeutic action compared to oral dosage forms that you have to swallow, that have to be digested to work their way in. Uh, One of my favorite lines from the abstract is that it's been very well received by the parents for use in children with full dentition. Meaning, (laughs) if you don't have teeth... This is not a viable drug delivery system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we don't want people to do is choke on this thing. <laughs> so you do have to be able to masticate. Now, interestingly, medicated chewing gum, although we're talking about it in this article as a relatively new vector, has been created before. And I'm not talking just about nicotine gum. The very first okay. patent for medical chewing gum was filed in 1869 for, are you ready? Aspirin gum. Uh Oh, oh, okay. That's a good, yeah, yeah. For, so for pain or headaches or fever. Yeah. And it, a medicated chewing gum with aspirin was introduced in 1928, you know, several years after that patent, uh, and then discontinued because too many people thought it was candy and there was a whole thing. We've talked about it in previous episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you don't want to like just be casually taking doses of aspirin on a regular basis, even though we give it for people who've had heart attacks. But normally we don't want to be walking around just with like a, a steady level of aspirin. In there. <laughs> if you'd like to know more about that, it's in our Senses of Medicine series, The Taste of Medicine, which was earlier this season. Uh, but let's look at the components of medical chewing gum. Just the chicle from the sapodilla tree. Okay. Uh, now, that's expensive and difficult to obtain, so you have to make natural gum or synthetic materials. Here's the factors that affect the release. When you think about chewing gum as a drug delivery system, some of them are very intuitive. You know, how long is the gum in the oral cavity? And a chewing time of about 30 minutes is considered close to ordinary use. You're not swallowing the gum. You're just chewing it until you get the medical effect. So about 30 minutes for a dosage. Not terrible. You also think about what are the properties of the active ingredient, meaning how fast is it released? If it's saliva soluble, it'll be released within a few minutes. Whereas if it's lipid or fat soluble, it'll first kind of seep its way into the gums and then be slowly released into the bloodstream. An analogy, which is not in gum, but we do have a dissolvable form of it in pediatrics, Josh, we do have a prednisolone, which is a corticosteroid. And that can be given for things like asthma. 
And rather than having one that you either need to chew or drink or any of those kind of things, because the taste can be off-putting, we do have sublingual forms because these corticosteroids are fat-soluble. So you actually just have the person put it a little bit under their tongue. The saliva does dissolve away the water-soluble materials, but then the medication actually gets absorbed through the blood vessels in the bottom of the tongue because that it's a very vascular, a blood-rich area. And the medication gets delivered that way really quick. Now, the one that's just brings a smile to my face, we talked about yeah. you know how long does the drug spend in the mouth and how the drug itself releases. Yeah. We didn't talk about the other half of that equation, the person chewing. The chewing frequency <laughs> and the chewing intensity that affect how fast a drug is released may vary from person to person. They had to do a, Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to yeah. <laughs> successfully release this drug? And a study done by the European Pharmacopoeia suggests 60 cycles per minute chewing rate to achieve proper release of active ingredient. <laughs> so next time you're chewing something, just start a stopwatch and see, can you get 60 chews in one minute? Because if so, that's what <laughs> they recommended. This would be, this is not like casually having some chewing gum in your mouth and enjoying the mint or whatever it is. This is like, it, it's very intentional. It's like chomp, 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 chomp. This is, so this you, is minute to minute, this is minute to win it. Yeah. <laughs> you are not popping bubbles. You're not doing tricks. You are chewing the daylights out of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, so one of the problems with this delivery system, which I'm sure we'll get to, is, you know, if you tell a person to swallow a tablet and you have a very good FDA like we do here in the United States with lots of safety checks and uh, quality control the whole way down the chain from manufacture all the way to delivery you know that from tablet to tablet, there is going to be very little variation in terms of how much medication gets delivered. And this is important in the real world. It's important in research. But if you're going to start delivering medications this way with gum, Josh, um, now I have a problem anyway with my kids because sometimes they'll cough, spit, whatever, you know, if you give them a syrup or whatever. But, uh, you know, if you're asking a person to chew, they have to be very good and deliberate about using this medication properly, or you're going to get variable results based on who chews the best. You also could get hypertrophy or overdevelopment of the chewing muscles. You could get a, a big old square jaw. <laughs> yeah. 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 So let's let's just briefly go over and we're not talking about any specific medication. We're looking at just gum as a form of drug delivery. Mostly it's done in dental situations to affect plaque or as you said nicotine delivery, but if we want to develop other forms, what are some of the advantages of medicated chewing gum? Well, it doesn't require water, so you can take it anywhere and therefore high patient compliance. Uh, okay. Yep. It's not supposed to be swallowed, which is good for people who have swallowing disorders. This is one of the toughest ones that we have is a, a lot of the time those folks who can't swallow, they're the ones in kind of highest need of medications. Um, you know, the, they might be bed bound, they might have various disorders and, and you can't just not treat them because they can't take the med. That's a terrible thing. Chewing increases the rate of saliva secretion, which gives you a couple things. It helps prevent dry mouth and 
plaques and cavities. Saliva has a buffering capacity, so it may reduce the acidity of gastric fluid. And gum doesn't go to the stomach, so you have less effects of some of the other things that traditionally medications tend to cause a little bit of diarrhea or flatulence or other gastric irritants. That's most medications. Well, if you have a medication that never reaches the stomach, you don't have to deal with those side effects. Sure. Yeah. It's so fillers is what we're talking about. And oftentimes, you know, the amount of medication that you have, Josh, in it, any pill or whatever it is, it is milligrams. Okay. A milligram is a thousandth the, the mass or the weight that you would feel of a paperclip. So if you're saying you're taking a 20 milligram, you know, tablet, that tablet certainly isn't 20 milligrams. You have to put something in there so that the person can, you know, actually get it down into their stomach and everything. Otherwise, like they wouldn't know. If <laughs> but that also means you have to either put, you know, something with gastric coating on there so that it can bypass the stomach. Those gels and stuff can upset the digestive tract. Other fillers and that kind of a thing sometimes contain stuff like sucrose and can spike the blood pressure or uh, blood sugar. So yeah, if you're able to take the carrier and just keep the carrier in your mouth, <laughs> but then you swallow the yeah, it delivers it continuously there. and regularly, so you get an increased duration of action. Now, some of the disadvantages that we've already mentioned, uh, prolonged chewing, especially at that rapid rate, may result in pain in facial muscles or earache. Uh, if you have dentures or fillers, gum could adhere and get stuck to it, meaning you may have some medical effects when you are not intending or don't think you're chewing the drug. Um, control over dosage isn't perfect. And there is, of course, a risk of overdosage with medical chewing gums compared to tablets or lozenges that are taken in a specific number and shorter period of time. So six up and half a dozen down. Yeah. I, in a population like the kids that I take care of, this is super helpful because of the struggles we often have anyway with kids having to either try to swallow crushed pills that we try to mix in, you know, yogurt or pudding or something like that, or syrups, which can often just taste horrible. Um, that second part is difficult because if the medication itself still tastes bad and you're asking the person to chew it, then, you know, they might be more apt to just like spit it out. Um, but you're right. I think the trade-off is kind of, you know, it, it all, it, I, I almost feel like I'm just happy that there's a new delivery system that's being thought of so that if a person wanted an option to have something like this, they could. So now that we have switched out your salt and drugged your gum, let's talk about non- non-pathologic steps that you can take at home to improve your overall health. And I'm going to tell you one thing that I know you have in your kitchen, Santosh, that you maybe as an infectious disease doctor have thought of, but that I'm going to bet most people don't really think about as a vector for infection. Oh. And that is your cutting board. Oh, yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A, a lot of folks don't think about And in fact, we as physicians don't often talk about this. It shows up a lot in family medicine and pediatrics for one big reason, and that is modern day baby bottles. And what we have to talk about oftentimes is that, you know, especially people who don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of space, the food prep that you do when you're using your cutting board, your knives and everything else like that is going to be with raw meat. Okay. And that you can cook those bacteria and everything out of there. Like, you know, if you cook the food well, but if you prep those and then the, I know it sounds gross, but the meat juices, <laughs> the meat juices are sitting around. And then, you know, even if you wash your hands well, but that surface is still there. And then you go to prep the kids food, which oftentimes, you know, you take like fruit or vegetables and you mash them or something like that, or you prep a bottle and you wash that cutting board in the same place where you're, you're washing the uh, baby bottles, that kind of thing. This is a lot of why it doesn't happen too, too often, thankfully here in the United States, but you get you know, infections with little kids with things like salmonella, where you're like, how the heck did that person get salmonella? They're three months old. They, they can't go anywhere. It's not like they can pick up a lizard. <laughs> so where did it come from? And oftentimes it, it comes from, yeah, the, the cutting board like this, if it's not washed and then kept away from, you know, the baby's food prep. So which do you think just off the top of your head is okay. a safer cutting board? Wood yeah. or plastic? Okay, so I know this because I think I've seen some kind of study like this before. I thought before it was plastic because you could have a nonstick surface that you could just like, you know, wipe down very easily and wash it off. Whereas wood is porous, right? It, it holds liquid and stuff in. But I think I was fooled. And I actually found out that as long, if both of them get cleaned equally, um, or, or treated equally, that actually the wood has less of a tendency to spread bacteria. Am I right? Are you wondering, home listeners? Well, we're going to pause <laughs> right here. I like to keep you in suspense. We're going to pause <laughs> right here as you stand over your cutting boards for a break from, first, us as sponsors. Just, have you signed up? Have you signed up <laughs> for our mailing list yet? If you do, you get access to your own free copy of an 80 Plagues book that talks about deadly sausage. Maybe the kind that's on your cutting board? I don't know. <laughs> this is an awesome ebook that we're giving away for absolutely free for anybody who wants to come over and sign up. And you get the ebook, and then we will be sending out to all of you lovely people, those who choose to receive emails from us updates and how are we doing and some behind the scenes stuff you know it's it's going to be coming maybe even a newsletter if dr santos starts up his science corner again i yeah i i need to actually physically go to the printing press and you know crank those out so while the next ads play why don't you head on over to travelmedicinepodcast.com and sign on up and we'll see you very soon. Hi. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we're back. Hi. So, Santosh, final yes. answer. Plastic final answer. or wooden cutting board? I, I'm going to go with this memory that I have from reading some older studies that had been done. I don't know if this study is going to agree with it, but I believe that one surprisingly said wood. You are correct. Wooden cutting boards are actually less likely to contaminate. Now, how long have we known this? Since 1994. Whoa. <laughs> this is not this is not a new study. It's just one I really feel I would like to bring to everyone's attention. So yeah. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about it. It was studied so wait, this, regarding this is like one of the, the piece of information that I probably read then when I was younger. Yeah, so I want okay. the first thing, very simple way to avoid some of your infectious issues. Uh Use separate cutting boards for meat and vegetables. Proteins and produce should not be cut on the same board. Especially if it's going to be fresh produce, right? Like part of a salad that you're not going to cook that those vegetables. Yes. Just in general, have different cutting boards for protein and produce. But let's talk about cross-contamination of food in kitchens. So in this study, new and used plastic plastic being polymers plus hard rubber, and wood, nine different hardwoods, so they looked at a wide variety of cutting boards, were chunked out into five centimeter little pizza blocks. Then everybody's favorite <laughs> lab bacteria, E. coli, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. including two non-disease causing strains, plus one of our favorites, the Bloody Burger strain 0157H7, yeah, this is this is a shiga toxin containing E. coli that can lead in children, especially to a condition called hemolytic uremic syndrome, where it basically messes with your platelets and kidneys in some crazy toxic way. So E. coli, listeria, or salmonella, so some okay. of our most common disease-causing foodborne bacteria, were yeah. applied to these surfaces in either nutrient broth or chicken juice. <laughs> okay. So yeah, industrial grade, you know, nutrient broth or, you know, stuffing your, your chicken kitchen. Or just like the chickeny beef juice that you get, the beef and chicken juice that you get in the package. And then recovered by soaking the surface in broth or pressing the block onto nutrient 
agar. So they dunked the blocks in chicken juice or covered them, and then they took the block, flipped it upside down, and pressed it into a bacteria plate. And that's to see how much of this bacteria was actually absorbed by the board um, within three to 10 minutes or up to 12 hours later to recover, to press it onto the board, to do the little food stamp. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, gotcha. So bacteria that had been placed onto plastic blocks, plastic cutting boards, were still easily recovered minutes to hours later and would in fact multiply if held overnight. Okay, okay. Recovery of bacteria from wooden blocks or cutting boards was less than those from plastic blocks across the board, regardless of if it was a new or a used cutting board. The difference increased with holding time. So a clean wood block would absorb the bacteria completely within three to 10 minutes. If these fluids contained 100 CFUs of bacteria likely to come from raw meat or poultry, the bacteria generally could not be recovered after entering the wood, meaning you slap a cutting board with raw chicken and... 10 minutes later, most of it's sunk under that top level and it's not coming back out. It's not cross-contaminating your food. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you up the logarithmic scale and you put more than 106 CFUs applied, you might Mm -hmm. get some bacteria from the wood after 12 hours at room temperature and high humidity, but the numbers were reduced in general around 98 to 99%. Uh, this had nothing to do with mineral oil treatment of the wood, which is meant to prevent, you know, moisture from getting out. From soaking in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but this shows wood cutting boards are actually better. So if you have plastic cutting boards, that doesn't mean that you can't use them. It does mean you should wash your cutting boards regardless of what they're made from. But you're much less likely to see contamination of whatever you had on the cutting board previously seeping its way into your food as you make your next dish. Yeah, essentially you're lowering your risk by switching out to you know good old wood. Uh, I will tell people out there, and I had to learn the hard way, Josh, the wooden cut- cutting board should not go in your dishwashers. <laughs> you're just going to end up with uh, not splinters, but it's going to fall apart much more quickly. Uh, so you do have to hand wash them. Um, the, the convenience of the plastic ones is that you can just throw it alongside your plates in, in an automatic dishwasher. But why are yeah. you not hand washing your cutting board anyway? Like, yeah, no, no, no. I used to, I, <laughs> I used to, I used to, but I, I learned it. And then nowadays as a, you know, full grown adult, I no longer, uh, dishwash my cutting boards. So they, they all, you know, just, and it doesn't take much, just like you said, once the bacteria get into the wood, there isn't much for it to live on the types of bacteria that we think of that are pathogenic to us, Josh. So they're just going to pretty much dry up, desiccate and die in there. If you leave them after washing them, you know, the surface of your cutting board a little bit and then leave it to dry. Um, you do have to be fairly diligent about cleaning it off. It's it's not automatic that it's going to be disease-free. But yeah, I, I endorse the wood. For those of you interested, beech wood was the best at retaining or, or not releasing bacteria later. Birch and maple, also pretty good. 
not quite as strong uh, when you're looking. So if you were looking into wood cutting boards, beech, then maple, then birch were some of your best options. Um, okay. I would love to see a Food Network show that goes into this, like who has the least bacteria, but I, I guess that should really ideally be everyone should have the least sure. bacteria in their food. So I don't know how that show would last more than an episode, but it did make for a fascinating cutting board study. I actually really love these. One of my, I'll give a shout out, one of my colleagues, Lynette Sande, uh, when she was in Infectious Diseases Fellowship uh, way back in the day, I'm talking about 2006, no, no, 2007, 2008, I think. Uh, but she actually joined and, and designed a project where she tested the viability of bacteria on surfaces so josh she got to play all day with like lego and barbie and my little pony <laughs> just you know kind of smearing bacteria on there and then the same kind of thing that this study did is you know sample it in just a bit and you know to see how it goes you know and and she was able to actually find out that of course those objects with less grooves and nooks and crannies were you know didn't hold on to bacteria as much so unfortunately lego blocks uh, are quite bacteria magnets. Um, not, not that they're so bad. So now let's now that we've talked about your food preparation area, let's yeah. talk about the actual food that you're putting on it. Santosh, do you wash your vegetables? Yes, yeah. Even when I get them from the grocery store, uh, here in the United States, uh, our produce is actually washed really, really thoroughly before it's put on the shelf. Um, even more so, I think, if it's in that organic aisle or whatever it is. But Do you sing happy birthday twice while washing your lettuce? No, no, that rule doesn't. <laughs> that rule is good for only hand washing, really. So you, you don't want to use that particular rule. But no, I, I basically, um, if you have lettuce, I just make sure to wash top and bottom and i get rid of all visible soil and so the the um water basically in, that i catch um should run clear that's the main thing but you're an infectious disease doctor are you just being overly cautious or paranoid <laughs> can we can we test this with science we certainly can yeah it's it, it's one of the funny things because we talk sometimes with you know, my uh, patients and this kind of a thing of like, oh, you know, oh, doctor, I'm not, I, we can't possibly have salmonella. And, you know, we, we use fresh vegetables and this kind of a thing. I said, really, do you garden? Yes. Okay. How well do you wash your veggies? Because this is one of these hidden places where uh, it's kind of gross to think about, but there are animals out there walking around your garden and little mice and rabbits and whatnot. They're a pooping. And they're pooping. Okay, separate from that, how many times have we talked about bacteria being discovered just in the dirt? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes. And You know where your you food know, grows? In the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's true. And a, a lot of these are non-pathogenic, non-culturable, right? They're, you know, they're not going to hurt you. But some of them certainly can. And I know industrially speaking that we've had – you know, salmonella and E. coli outbreaks when animals have pooped 
in an adjoining field and then the the crops have gotten the runoff so let's go to the journal of food protection great name so the purpose of this study was to determine how efficacious how effective different cleaning methods are to reduce bacterial contamination on fresh produce and this is key in a home setting for those of you who are home chefs uh if you follow my instagram dr j's test kitchen i like to do a little bit of plating i fancy myself a food network contestant i'm not i would fail so miserably on <laughs> these shows but i like to make i like to pretend so He's being humble it is not true it is amazing we read up on this study and they looked at lettuce, broccoli, apples, and tomatoes to provide a wide variety of the kind of food textures and surfaces that people are likely to do. They didn't exhaustively look at every kind of produce, but they looked at smooth, they looked at hard, they looked at leafy with a lot of surface area and lots of nooks and crannies. All of these vegetable categories were inoculated with listeria and then subjected to combinations of the different cleaning procedures, including soak for two minutes in tap water, a veggie wash solution, a 5% vinegar solution, or a 13% lemon solution. So that was the first part. And then rinse under tap water, rinse and rub under tap water, brush under tap water, or wipe with a wet, dry paper towel. So those are all the different options they tested to see which was the most effective method of cleaning your vegetables. Yeah, the veggie wash solution, for those of you who are curious, is actually a, uh, a, it's a commercial product. And Josh, this is basically, they, they've got some, you know, lipids and acids together, which are, you know, all organic, blah, 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 blah. but it's water, glycerin, oleic acid, um, which is an oil, and, and then laurel glucoside is a soap, citrus orontium dulcis which is orange peel oil sunflower seed rosemary so they're they're basically getting together natural acids and uh slight you know um uh soaps i guess you you would call them uh, in order to you know to wash your veggies uh yeah i'd be curious josh so i wonder if this thing fared better than the water etc but i i'm guessing that you're going to tell me so let's talk about some of these. So first, the produce was individually submerged in three liters of a bacterial inoculum, so a, a dunk tank of bacteria, Okay. and then agitated by stirring it with a steel spoon for three minutes. So really swishing it around to make sure that you get bacteria over as much of this. Then it was air dried for 10 minutes in a biosafety cabinet before they started doing the washing. So every piece of produce was known to have bacteria on it so they could see. There were also some positive controls that didn't get cleaned at all to see what the baseline contamination level was. We've got a host of different bacteria, a host of different cleaning methods, and then a like a before and after, or an after rinse or a lack of it. For lettuce, just rinsing lettuce leaves under cold running tap water for 15 seconds with no pre-soak, showed the lowest significant bacterial reduction of about 1.4 log CFUs compared to all the other treatments. Not Soaking okay. for 30 minutes in tap water was considered too long to be practical. People got to eat <laughs> and was not significantly different from only two minutes of soaking in tap water. Oh, okay. Okay. 
a two-minute soak in tap water or veggie wash, followed by a 15-second rinse under tap water, under running tap water, resulted in reductions of 2.3 logs and 2.28. So no significant difference between a pre-soak in tap water or veggie wash. Okay. And compared with rubbing or brushing, about 2.1 log or 2.0 log under running tap water without prior soaking. So it doesn't really seem like pre-soaking makes a huge difference regardless of what you're washing it in. Brushing might help, but the biggest thing is rinsing for at least 15 seconds under running tap water. Least effective was just wiping apples with a dry or wet paper towel. Did take some of the bacteria off, but barely any. 0.6 and at best 0.9 of CFUs. So let's go back to kind of what does that mean? I'm, I'm throwing out a lot of terms. You don't actually need to know what CFU means. <laughs> yeah, but I, pre-soaking. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'm. I'm gonna. Go I ahead. was gonna tell them what CFU means anyway. Oh sure. Yeah. Oh CFU. No, I'm kidding. So <laughs> CFU. CFU. Is, yeah. <laughs> CFU is a colony forming unit. So when you take out a circular plate. Uh, of agar and you put bacteria on it, then you actually can count the number of colonies. Each of those colonies is a single clone of bacteria that multiplies. So one of those is called a colony forming unit. And we measure them, in, in this case, the, the reduction in uh, on a logarithmic scale. So it, it goes by powers of 10. So, you know, a, a two log versus a one log is not a, it, it's not twice the difference it's actually 10 times the difference and um, three log would be 100 times the difference so we're talking about large changes in you know the amount of bacteria that are sitting there but this is kind of a standard way to count pre-soaking in water before you rinse for just two minutes significantly reduced bacteria in most produce apples tomatoes and lettuce made no difference for broccoli probably because the increased surface area and Broccoli yeah. absorbs liquid like a sponge, so. <laughs> uh, That's true. Wiping apples and tomatoes with a wet or dry paper towel did reduce bacteria, but not anywhere near the amount that soaking and rinsing did. Yeah, and um, Josh, this actually translates from, you know, when I'm in the lab and I'm doing experiments with things like Western blots or, you know, immunofluorescence assays and that kind of a thing to get rid of background after I do my staining, it's the number of washes that I actually, uh, you know, put the slide through or something like that, that actually de-stains and, you know, reduces my, the background of my experiment. So this makes a lot of sense. It's not, you know, the, the time of soak or anything like that. It's the, those repeated rinses to get rid of organic matter, bacteria. So the most cost-effective method is to soak for about two minutes and then clean fresh produce with about 15-second rinse under cold tap water. All right. Perfect. Yeah, that's quick, easy, and, you know, saves a life, probably. Yeah. So that's let's see. We've got drug delivery chewing gum. We've swapped out your table salt for a substitute. We've given you 
some surprising but well-known long-lasting knowledge about cutting boards and we've told you just like your hands wash your dang vegetables <laughs> now uh josh i gotta uh you, i gotta give a shout out to the little parasite that i've worked on for so long toxoplasma gondii shout out to the eukaryotic pathogens uh there is a big reason why I tell people, okay, yeah, reduction of bacteria, all these kind of things, which was studied here. There is another one, which is toxoplasma, which, you know, for an immunocompromised person, you know, can, can cause brain infection and eye infection, but also for a pregnant mom, if they get acutely infected with this, it can cause congenital infection, can cause harm to the, the baby growing and, and sometimes permanent brain damage, uh, and difficult to treat as well. One of the ways that this little parasite gets around is it replicates in the intestine of cats, and then it forms this hardy O-cyst or O-cyst. And this thing, you cannot destroy it, Josh. You can't destroy it with bleach but you can wash it off. So when you get fresh vegetables and stuff, you see dirt on it and this kind of thing. When you're washing it off, you're also getting rid of Toxoplasma gondiiosis and helminth eggs and this kind of a thing that can drop off in the soil from humans and animals. So yeah, uh, aside from bacteria, you're getting rid of your eukaryotic pathogens as well. And you just, you don't want those things hanging on your lettuce. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and concerns. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading to some of these studies that we talked about. You could also contact us directly by signing up for the mailing list at travelmedicinepodcast.com, and we will send you a free 80 Plagues ebook where you can learn about even more foodborne mysteries. Woo! This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. Until next time, as always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, wash your dang vegetables, and find a fun restaurant or recipe you want to try in a different part of the world, make buy some tickets. And once you've done all that, hey, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious doc and researcher. Santosh, I have been watching so much TV lately. I'm, I'm torn between being super excited about the bear or equally terrified not knowing whether anything around me is capable. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.